Our teaching text for today comes from Genesis 32, 22-31. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched, and he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your willingness to wrestle with us in our humanity. Open our hearts to your word, spoken through John today, that we might love you more and love others like you. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Amy Ann. All right, y'all can have a seat. Well, did you know that for over a thousand years, spiritual seekers have flocked to Spain to travel down the pilgrimage of the Camino de Santiago? Uh, They'll fly thousands and thousands of miles to go take this effectively a 500-mile walk that comes to an end at the Cathedral de Santiago Compostela in the town of Galicia. That's how you say it if you're in Spain, Galicia which is rumored to be the place where the bones of the Apostle James uh, found their final resting place. And you think to yourself, why would someone travel thousands of miles and pay all of this money to go on a 500-mile walk dealing with blisters and mental and spiritual and physical exhaustion, often gross sleeping conditions, only to show up at a church in this little town where maybe the bones of a disciple are buried? Well, over, over uh, many, many centuries, innumerable people have had this transformative experience as part of the journey of pilgrimage. And the Camino de Santiago is one of many pilgrimage sites or pilgrimage, pilgrimage journeys that people go on around uh, all over the world. In fact, other world religions pick up the concept of the pilgrimage. But a pilgrimage is, is I think, a, a metaphor and a reality that's uniquely Christian. It's one of the most poignant metaphors for the nature of the Christian life. It's arduous and lengthy, not a one-time event or, or a sprint. It's holistically engaging and exhausting. We use all of our faculties, all of our personhood as a part of this journey rather than just being like a weekend at the spa. It's exhausting at times. And yet, in in the pilgrimage, the act of pilgrimage, and also in the metaphor of the pilgrimage, 
Uh, it gives us the capacity to be spiritually and emotionally and physically and relationally transformed. And it seems that some things can only be proven true, can become clear, if you're willing to commit to the long-term journey of the pilgrimage. And it's reminiscent of the words of Paul in the book of Acts to the church in Antioch where he said, we must go through many hardships to enter in the kingdom of God. A pilgrimage is a means whereby those who want it can desire, can gain wisdom and courage and revelation from God. There is a gain in the process, but there is a steep cost. Therefore, few will expend it. At the beginning of the year, we began taking up this, this imagery of the ancient paths come, coming to us from uh, Jeremiah 6, which is kind of rhymes with that language and imagery of a pilgrimage. And in Jeremiah 6, the prophet said, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you'll find rest for your souls. And as we said at the very beginning, the ancient path is not a literal road like the Camino de Santiago, but it's a manner of being in the world. It's a, a transformative process of following Jesus. The prophet in, in chapter 6 says it's something that you have to ask for. It's something that you have to be shown. Now, resolving to go down the ancient path, like adopting the identity of a pilgrim, means that you are opting for challenge over comfort in life. That you're prioritizing truth over falsehood. The ancient path stands in stark contrast to what we could call the, the popular path, which is how most people live and think and operate in the world. To adapt a pilgrim's identity is to effectively adapt a minority perspective in the world. I'm going to go and I'm going to operate in a manner of being that's different than most everybody. The ancient path treasures above all God's wisdom for the best way to be human. Now, the ancient path is not necessarily in a blanket affinity for everything that's old. It's not implicit approval for everything that happened in the past. At the same time, it's not this like a rejection of everything just because it's new. The ancient path recognizes that all that is old is not wisdom, and all that is new is not progress. The ancient path stands in stark contrast to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace which is Christianity without discipleship or following Jesus without having to pick up your cross. It stands in contrast to nominal or cultural Christianity, which leverages Jesus as a mechanism just to gain personal happiness or nationalistic triumphalism. I believe, and I've been hinting at this kind of perspective over the last couple of months, that in the years to come, there's going to be a pronounced difference between those churches who are functioning as mere therapeutic guides for happiness or churches who have set their sights on merely winning culture wars and those churches who have set their sights on seeking the kingdom of God by journeying down the ancient path together, taking up their cross and following Jesus. After we laid the foundation looking at Jeremiah chapter 6, we went to the book of Genesis, the, the most ancient of our books, the most ancient of our stories, uh, considering what does it mean to journey down the ancient path. And in Genesis 1, we recognize that the ancient path begins with the foundational concept that God is God and we are not. This sounds like the author of the Proverbs said, the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom. So we carried on, we recognized the ancient path uh, notes that God alone has the authority to define right and wrong, truth and falsehood. And making these two confessions that God is God and God alone has the right to define right and wrong necessarily separates us from the crowd and our identity and our behavior. We pull apart from the rest of the world while maintaining a connection to the world to be a generative, modifying presence. The ancient path is marked not by unshakable faith, but by an enduring inquisitiveness, exercising both the courage to believe and the courage to examine our most deeply held beliefs. It's too aware of our own folly and arrogance and sin to be proud, recognizing that we always need to live in this posture of humility and repentance. As my friend Charlie Baker talked about a couple of weeks ago, the ancient path is marked by this posture of, of unconditional surrender, of increasing trust in God. Last week, my friend Peter talked about how journeying down the ancient path is sustained by these encounters with the living God. Sometimes it feels like you're given just a morsel, and sometimes you're blinded by the light, but it's, it's sustained in big ways and small ways from these mysterious encounters with God. And then today in Genesis chapter 32, we come to this this strange passage of a story about Jacob wrestling with God and walking away with a limp. What does this all mean? I wonder how many of you have found this to be true. That the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you are journeying down the pilgrim's path, the ancient path, certainly you have these, uh, this growing awareness of who God is and what God is like. It's this kind of progressive revelation. God's revealing himself to you over time. That's true. But also the longer you walk with God, the more you walk with Jesus, you have these encounters at times that are very, very painful with yourself and the reality of like what is going on in your heart and who you really are. You see, at the core of our being, we have our, our, our temperament, our disposition, our posture toward the world. We have our deepest longings and our most private insecurities and fears, our secret wounds. This is what we could probably call our, our first circle level of existence. Can we put that up there? It's gone, okay? The small circle, the, the things that are most core to us, our first circle uh, level of existence are those, those deeply held beliefs and wounds and secrets and longings, for good or for bad, the stuff that's in us. And if I really wanted to meddle in your affairs, if I really wanted to get a sense of what's going on in your first circle existence, I could sit across the table from you and just ask some open-ended questions and wait and watch you squirm. I could say something like, when did it happen? Or I could just say, why are you like this? And if I just sat there long enough and you started sweating enough, and if I ask the, the right kind of probing questions, I think I could have you in the fetal position crying in a matter of about five or ten minutes. What's going on in, in our first circle uh, level of existence is often unknown or underknown uh, to us because it's often unexplored or underexplored by us. Sometimes we deliberately deny others and ourselves access to that core of who we are because it's, it's scary and it's unsettling. 
And we all tend to try to avoid things that make us uncomfortable. We all tend to avoid things that make us feel insecure. But whether we deal directly with it or not, what's going on in our first circle typically gets expressed in our second circle, which is the world of our relationships. What's going on in our first circle is typically expressed in our second circle, the the world of relationships. This is why the author of Proverbs said in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, your first circle, because everything you do flows from it. It gets expressed in your second circle. Now, here's a really sobering reality. Often, when we avoid our first circle pain, our fears, our insecurities, and they're allowed to go on existing without being questioned or challenged or examined, without reordering them as needed, what often happens is that our unresolved and unaddressed first circle pain gets passed on to those in our second circle. What's going on in us as as it's undealt with gets passed on and it affects the people in our second circle. And often in the cases of parents and children, as we're going to see in the story today, our unresolved first circle issues often become the first circle issues of those closest to us, especially our children. And these kind of issues can be passed on for generations. Whether it's addiction or anxiety failure to healthily address conflict or relate to authority, our failure or our inability to address those first circle issues and wounds, our our failure to seek healing at the core of who we are often gets passed along to others in ways that create pain. And again, if we were sitting across the table from one another, we could ask questions about what have you inherited Lots of good things we inherit from our families, but what else have you inherited from your parents, from your grandparents, from significant people in your second circle? Our failure to address our first first circle woundedness often gets passed on to those in our second circle. Now, it's worth saying that one does not necessarily rush into dealing with your own first circle issues. It's not necessarily something that you chase. It's almost like handling plutonium or radioactive materials. Uh, There's an explosive potential to dealing with those things in a way that lacks discretion or wisdom. It requires uh, skill and precision and training and care in an environment of safety. You just don't rush in because the, the consequences could be disastrous. But as we look back on Jacob's story, and I assume that many of you are familiar with it, we're going to find that there are these unique moments in time. There are these moments that have been prepared ahead of us, like for ages and generations, where where God senses the ripeness of our hearts, and there's a temporary open door where God can come in and deal gently, or as we're going to see in Jacob's case, deal very directly with our first circle woundedness. God has there these moments of ripeness and rightness where God wants to come and offer us chances to grow toward wholeness and healing. He wants to tend and to mend those wounds within if we'll let him. So think back to everything you know about Jacob's story. We've been talking about Abraham. We talked about Isaac. Now Jacob is the third generation of the family of God and what God is doing to bless the whole world through this, this people group. 
Think about everything that you know about Jacob. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? From the moment that Jacob enters the world, he's a fighter and a scrapper. You know anybody who has that personality? Like they've just got like kind of a chip on their shoulder. That's Jacob. He comes out of the womb grabbing onto his brother's foot as if to say from the very beginning, I am not going to let you get ahead of me. Jacob is, is manipulative. He's driven. He has this bent toward mistrust. When his brother Isaac comes in, starving from a long journey, and he asks for some food, Jacob leverages his brother's desperation to get something that he wants. When his father Isaac was nearing his death, he manipulates and deceives his father into getting the blessing, effectively becoming, even though he was the second born, the beneficiary of his father's estate. And this tendency to, to fight, to assume that others will betray him, and the belief that he must fight to protect himself is at the core of Jacob's first circle woundedness. But this is fascinating. This blew my mind. It didn't come to him out of thin air. Think about what we've already, the story we've already told. Go to Jacob's grandmother, Sarah. Sarah did not trust that God was going to just bless her because God is good. Sarah fought and she scrapped and she put together this plan where her husband would sleep with her servant, Hagar, so that she could like make God's plans work on her timeline. Sarah's unresolved first circle trust issues got passed on to the next generation. Think about Jacob's mother. Jacob's mother, Rebecca, she was the one who coached him through deceiving her husband at the expense of her first son. Sarah is the one who coached him through like making the big mess of their family that he did. Her unresolved first circle issues were passed along to the second, to the next generation. And despite God's faithfulness to this whole family tree, the light of God's healing presence had yet to break through and shine in those dark corners of the family's uh, behavioral and dispositional history. Well, you know the story that as, as Jacob uh, deceives his father and he gets the blessing, he knows that uh, that action was going to uh, elicit an equal and opposite reaction. And so he hit the road and he ran away from his brother Esau, having gotten what he wanted all along, the blessing of the firstborn. On his way out of town, he stops at this place called Bethel, which means the house of God. And he has this kind of spiritual experience as he's running from his family problems. He goes and meets his, his uncle Laban, the brother of his mother, and gets himself tricked and deceived into working 14 plus years for the bride of his choice. Laban as well, if you read the story, had unresolved first circle trust issues that created pain in the lives of his nephew and his daughters. Nonetheless, there in a far-off land, Jacob is living under the rule of his uncle Laban, and he prospers. He has, he has wives, he has children, the, the livestock increase. And as, the, as his uh, authority grows, he wants to get away from his uncle, and, and so he and his household make plans to go back home toward Esau. Jacob, ever the fighter, ever the scrapper, con contrives this plan to scrap his way into the life he prefers by charming and pleasing and being generous toward his brother. 
So he has this, he's put together this plan where through generosity, he's going to win him over. He's sending ahead all of these gifts. So as Esau's making his way and Jacob's anticipating his brother just wants to beat the tar out of him, he's going to see all these gifts, wave after wave. He's going to be systematically introduced to his children and his spouses. And when Jacob comes up at the rear, he's hoping his brother's going to be favorably disposed toward him. And this whole plan is going to be enacted in the morning. In the text that Amy Ann read for us, we've got Jacob very much alone, again in Bethel, this place where he'd previously had a spiritual experience when he was running away from his family, and now he's timidly coming back to his family, and we get a sense of Jacob's vulnerability. And I'll tell you, family wounds, you've had this experience. Family wounds, you can be an incredibly confident and competent person in any other relationship. You can be like a bulldozer at work. But sometimes family wounds are the things that make us the most fearful and timid and insecure. And that's the situation that Jacob's in. He's feeling nervous and uncertain about what's going to go down when he meets this brother again that he tricked all of those years ago. As chapter 32 begins, Jacob walks into Bethel, and he's just aware of God's presence. He's aware of angelic presence, too. There's moments in life, I wonder if you've had a moment where you just sensed God's activity. Maybe it didn't feel quite like Jacob, but you just sensed you're on holy ground. I heard one author say, like, there are moments where he sensed the divine ear. He just knew God wanted him to talk to him. Have you ever had a moment where you sensed that God was doing something. Well, for Jacob, in his vulnerability and his solitude, the first circle pain and the family woundedness that he's inherited uh, for generations, his, his impulse to fight, his impulse to mistrust, all of these things are on full display. Now, just imagine how strongly you would have responded this, if this had come up earlier. Poof, man. Send y'all home weeping. It's at this moment of his, his greatest vulnerability that God decides, like, Jacob is ready and the time is ripe to deal with what's in there. God is coming to confront Jacob to take on that first circle chaos. What's interesting is God does it in a manner that is tailor-made for Jacob. He doesn't come gently or quietly. You have this picture of, like, Jesus smiling and holding lambs. That's not how he comes to Jacob. He comes to Jacob to kick his teeth in. He comes to Jacob to, to pick a fight. God apprehends Jacob and says, now's the time for us to deal with these issues, to duke things out. We've already seen in the book of Genesis that God approaches people differently. When God approaches Abraham, he does not physically fight him. That's not Abraham's style. Uh, God comes to Abraham whose deepest longing, his first circle longing is to be a father. He says, for you to be trusted with the calling of being a father of many nations, you need to surrender that desire to be a father. And so he's told to sacrifice his son Isaac. And just at the right moment, God intervenes. You, you trusted me. Abraham needed to deal with the, uh, his, his tendency to make that core longing an idol, and God redeemed it in the manner in which he confronted Abraham, tailor-made for him. But Jacob, he didn't need gentleness. Jacob liked the fight, and that's how God came to him. Jacob is like that Rich Mullen song that four of you have heard 30 years ago. He says, surrender don't come natural to me. 
I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. And that's, that's Jacob. It's an odd text, talking about God physically wrestling with someone and the person appearing to be winning. <laughs> you think, this doesn't feel quite right. But in the text, we get this sense that, that God has deliberately limited his power to give Jacob a sense of fairness in the fight. Have you ever seen The Princess Bride? I only make dated references, by the way. Uh, the Princess Bride, uh, Carrie Elwes, the man in black, is fighting with Andre the Giant, and Andre the Giant's giving him a chance, and he says, why are you going easy on me? He says, I want you to feel like you're doing well. That's what's going on between God and Jacob. God's letting Jacob believe that he's got a chance in this. He's got the upper hand. And Jacob, with all those years of pent-up aggression and rage and energy, he just wants someone to match him with all that's going in on him, scraps and fights the Lord and asks for a blessing, the thing that he's been doing all of his life. And God acquiesces and gives him a blessing, a new name, Israel, the one who wrestles with God. But in order to demonstrate to Jacob that this is not a battle between equals, at the climax of the fight, God just touches his hip and wrenches it out of socket. It's like God was saying, I've let you get your energy out. I've let you tire yourself out fighting me, but I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I can squash you like a bug. And Jacob had finally been bested. And in that moment, God gave him not only a new name as a blessing and a gift, but he gave him another one, and that was his limp. As a gift to combat his inflated sense of self, he spent the rest of his days hobbling along as a memento of the day that God confronted him with severe mercy. We turn to Genesis chapter 3, and Jacob enacts his plan. He sends ahead the gifts and his wives and his children. And when finally he sees his brother that he deceived and betrayed, they embrace one another. And Esau responds unexpectedly. He says, what's the meaning of all these gifts? And Jacob said, well, honestly, I was trying to butter you up and get you favorably disposed toward me. And Esau says, brother, keep what you have. I've got plenty Esau is like the foil. He's the opposite of Jacob, whereas Jacob is all scarcity and mistrust. Esau is fine. It's a response that Jacob doesn't see coming. All of his life, he's been working on the assumption of scarcity, that he needs to defend himself. He's been fighting and scrapping in his second circle, trusting no one and being mistrusted. And finally, God confronts him in that first circle insecurity, by engaging him as he is, which is a fighter. I have to wonder, you know, you know, where did this tendency to fight and mistrust come from? Was it his mom, his grandma, his sin nature? It's, it's uncertain. But what's more certain is the person that Jacob most needed to duke it out, to duke out the issues of his first circle, was God. And Jacob the fighter needed to be outfought. He needed to be bested, to work out his aggression and to gain intimacy and to gain a limp to remember it. So often, we pour our energy into dealing with our second circle issues. 
When the thing that we most avoid and we most need to do is trust God enough with our first circle issues to bring it all front and center and just duke it out and talk about it and deal with it directly. One commentator on this passage said that to go through a struggle with God before we go through it with others can provide resources of strength and blessing for whatever lies in the wings of life. Or put differently, when we let God apprehend us, to, to confront us, to simultaneously wound us and heal us in that place of intimate first circle pain, it may just liberate us to live a life of greater healing and freedom and wholeness in our second circle where we never thought possible. It's like that scene in Goodwill Hunting. Again, all of my references are 20 years or older. Where Matt Damon's character is, uh, commits a violent act and is forced to go into counseling. He churns through all of his counselors until he's finally assigned to sit with uh, another counselor, played by Robin Williams. And Robin Williams just systematically wears him down. Over time, over months, slowly gaining trust, slowly gaining the ability to speak into his life. Until there's that moment of ripeness. When in vulnerability... In weakness, in exhaustion, the door is open just temporarily and the counselor gently slips in and echoes these words that the character just so needs to hear. All that stuff that happened to you, it's not your fault. And, you know, Matt Damon's like, yeah, I, I know. And he's, Robin Williams is increasing in intensity. No, I mean, it's not your fault. Yeah, I, I know. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And you start to sober up and you see the defensiveness come out first as anger. And the anger like rises and rises. It's not your fault. And he wants to fight Robin Williams. It's not your fault. And he breaks down and he collapses. There's that moment of ripeness when the door was temporarily open to deal with that first circle woundedness. Begins the road to healing. Some people talk about in, in trauma, in the, in the presence of trusted people, there's, there's a U-curve to our recovery where we actually need to go through in the presence of trusted people to the depths of our pain and trauma and relive it in the presence of trusted people, truly naming and seeing what's in our first circle woundedness in order to find greater healing in our second circle and even in our first. We need to go through the bottom. It's like the descent to the dead, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks. As I was writing this week, so sometimes you're preaching a text, and sometimes like, you're, like the text is like grabbing your attention in ways that make you uncomfortable, and that was for me this week. Thinking about, okay, well, what may be in my first circle, or what, what might God be actually wanting to say to me? And I got very uncomfortable. It's like, oh, crap, it's not just for them. I wonder what's going on in your first circle. I wonder as I even earlier just began to like pry and ask when did it happen or why are you this way, I, I wonder what began to bubble up in your heart. In what ways are you disposed toward trust or mistrust and why? What hurts? What Fears, what longings exist in the deepest recesses of your heart? 
What wounds did the generation and generations before you fail to deal with and you've received as part of your inheritance those unresolved issues? Through their action and inaction, through their presence and absence, through their words and their silences, what first circle woundedness have you inherited? And if we could peer into your heart, what would we see? Here's a question. Have you ever let God have, an, have the security clearance to get to that part of you? Have you ever let God have access to that core part of your first circle existence? Now, in all likelihood, if you've even been vaguely religious, you've given God you know, superficial, superficial consultation. You've said, yeah, how would you advise me on these generic second circle issues? But have you ever let him put his finger on that pain point in your heart? Have you ever let God or anybody else close enough where they could actually hurt you or heal you? It could be that it's just not time. And I'm not advising you to divulge everything in your apprentice group this week. It could be too early. And maybe there's not a ripeness to it for you just yet, and that's okay. God gives Jacob a head start of a couple of decades. A cup for a couple of decades, Jacob's woundedness is on full display to anyone who encounters him. But there may come a day where God apprehends you. And I don't know if you're in your disposition or the kind of person who needs to duke it out like Jacob or you're a person who needs to be succumb and you surrender your core desires to gain it back like Abraham. But I want you to know that if you're resolved to follow Jesus down the ancient path, if you're resolved to be a pilgrim, to be in the company of like those who are following Jesus through the generations and for the years to come, know that part of our pilgrimage is this invited suffering of encountering the severe mercy of God. Accepting these moments where it's not good enough just to learn more about Him with this not reciprocal level of intimacy where He wants to know us and He wants us to know ourselves. Know that, that, that in, in moments like this, God is not coming to tease or to wound or to hurt. He's coming to heal. And rather than running away, which is our tendency to run from any pain or discomfort, the invitation of the Holy Spirit is to actually draw near. In these moments where our pain may be increasing, God's voice may also be increasing through that pain, saying, I can make you well. I can help you deal with this. Will you trust me? Are you willing to let me help you? And the encounter, the conversation, the battle may leave us with a limp, or with a wound, but it's the kind of wound that can teach us wisdom. And as we prepare today to receive Holy Communion, I find it incredibly comforting that right now, at the right hand of the Father, the Son of Man who also bears wounds in His body, in His hands, in His feet, in His sides, Evidence of the severe mercy of God. Proof of the love of God for us. The pain of all the world was laid on him 
so that the peace that was uniquely his could be offered freely to the whole world. He was pierced, he was bruised for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Today, if you hear the voice of God saying, come on, let's talk, let's deal, answer, respond, say yes. Let's pray together. Remember how the scriptures say that Jesus knew the hearts of all men. Knew the hearts of all people. Know the heart, Lord Jesus, uh, scripture says, can be as deceptive beyond measure. I pray today, Lord Jesus, in your presence, the presence of our brothers and sisters in Christ, may your voice uh, speak uh, words of truth to our deceived hearts. Where we've been so inclined to run, would you call us to run home to you? So many of us have stayed far away because in coming home to you, we expected confrontation. We expected rage or judgment. And like Esau, you gave, a, you gave Jacob that unexpected mercy, and you want to do the same for us. Lord Jesus, may it be true of the people of our church and those who belong to the church of Jesus Christ all around the world, may it be true that in increasing measure we are learning to be well as you confront us. In Lent, we recognize there's sickness in our heart, there's sin in our hearts. We have greater allegiances than our allegiance to the kingdom. We love other things more than we love you. It's costing us so much, so would you reorder us, Lord Jesus? Would you realign our hearts? Would you kindle fresh affection for you? Would you increase our trust and our courage to trust you? And Lord, would you make us well? In the fullness of time, the ripeness of time, would you confront us with your severe mercy? And may those in our, our closest to us experience the transformation. We love you, Lord, and we want to love you more. We trust you, and we want to trust you even more. In Jesus' name, amen.